0: My guest story starts with Jim, a boy who loved magic tricks. Jim was from a small town and poor. His family life was challenging. One day, he went to a local magic shop in search of new tricks. Upon entering, Jim was greeted by the mother of the owner who offered to teach him real magic in addition to the tricks that were being sold there. This real magic came in the form of various exercises in meditation, self-compassion, and visualizations about a future that he began to imagine. My guest, Dr. James Doty, has done a lot with his life since he left his small town. He is a highly regarded neurosurgeon. He is also the director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University School of Medicine. In addition, he's the author of a beloved book called Into the Magic Shop that describes an extraordinary story featuring his humble past, his relationship with his mentor Ruth, and the exercises she taught him that played a huge part in catapulting him to huge success. I love Jim's book, and I'm not alone. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, This book tells the remarkable story of a neurosurgeon's quest to unravel the mystery of the link between our brains and our hearts. So listen in as Jim and I talk about the real magic of compassion, near-death experiences, visualizing, and unraveling the mystery between our brains and hearts. Dr. James Doty, who has asked me to call him Jim, welcome to Super Psyched.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be with you. And
0: I'm excited about this. Oh, I've been really looking forward to this. So for my listeners who aren't as familiar with your backstory, can you say a little bit about who you are now and where you came from? In summary, I grew up actually in Lancaster, California, in poverty.
1: My father was an alcoholic. My mother had a stroke when I was a child and partially paralyzed, a seizure disorder, chronically depressed, attempted suicide. Essentially my entire life at home, we were on public assistance. And it was very challenging because as you know, unfortunately when children grow up in these types of environments, they're often traumatized, they're scared, they feel a sense of hopelessness, despair. Many of them are depressed. And unfortunately the future for many of those children does not bode well. With those types of issues as part of their backstory, oftentimes you see these children with drug and alcohol issues, you see them with mental health issues. But what saved me, if you will, and I don't want to imply my parents didn't love me, they did. But what saved me was walking into a magic shop one day and the owner wasn't there, but his mother was there and she greeted me with this really radiant smile. And the nature of how she smiled, how she looked at me, how we talked, created this environment of psychological safety, which is very important for us to thrive, if you will, where you feel no one's judging you, you're accepted, they're not critical. And so we had a conversation and after about a half an hour or so, she said to me, I'm here for another six weeks. And if you show up, I think I could teach you some things that could really help you. And I did show up. But fundamentally that conversation with her trajectory of my life, it made me understand that within my power was the ability to accomplish whatever I chose. And that allowed me to believe that I could go to college, go to medical school, become a neurosurgeon, become a successful entrepreneur, become a professor at Stanford. And so that has fundamentally of my life. But the most important thing is. Understanding of how important it is to be self compassionate or kind to yourself. And by doing so, it allows you to see through a different lens at other people, where you try to create these environments of psychological safety. You try to be non judgmental. You try to be accepting. And when you create those types of environments, it allows people to thrive. And so, Ultimately, I founded a center at Stanford, which the Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor, called the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. And when I started this about 13 or 14 years ago, really, there was nothing in this space in the world in the sense that this was not really researched, little if at all. It wasn't something that people embraced as an important part of improving an individual's health. And over that course of time, as you've probably seen, in some ways, like mindfulness had a exponential growth in terms of interest since Jon Kabat-Zinn brought mindfulness-based stress reduction to the U.S. based on a secularized Buddhist practice. And so when I started, as I said, there wasn't that much interest. And in fact, I was told by academics that studying this was a dead end for promotion if you wanted an academic career. But now you look at it, essentially, compassion is on the tip of everyone's tongue. It's recognized universally how important it is, especially in the face of the pandemic. And also, I've been fortunate to contribute to my, well, the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, which is really a compilation of the latest research in various aspects of this field. And as we were talking about a little bit earlier, I wrote a memoir that incorporates neuroscience and um, contemplative practice. That was a New York Times bestseller. It's now translated into 40 languages. And also, interestingly enough, the Korean pop music group, BTS, actually used it for the basis for their third album called Love Yourself Tear. And there's a song in there called Magic Shop. So that's my backstory.
0: It's such a great backstory. And it really, I can't help but think of Star Wars and Luke Skywalker being on kind of this dusty planet. And here you are on a bicycle in this dusty town of Lancaster. And there you go searching for magic, wanting to connect with your own inner genius through magic, wanting to perhaps even through a trick of hand, be able to connect with people and kind of trick people. And then this Obi-Wan Kenobi-like figure, a mentor, shows up in your life in the form of Ruth, who offers you real magic. She says, I'll give you six weeks. I will be your Mr. Miyagi. I will be your mentor. I will teach you how to connect to yourself, how to connect to others, and actually have an unimaginably amazing future, it's almost like that zen aphorism of, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher shows up, you were ready and you didn't even know it. And I was wondering, can you describe what self-compassion is and how it's done? One of the things a lot of people don't appreciate is there's so many
1: children who have childhood trauma and there's so many people who have this trauma in some ways that has become a monkey on their back. And many of them don't realize it. When you have shame, when you have a sense that you're not good enough, these have a tendency to be drivers of behavior that you may not even appreciate or recognize. And I tell people that when you interact with somebody, oftentimes the interaction you're having really has nothing to do with you per se. It has to do with the drivers of uh, these people's behavior, many of which they don't recognize. And so understanding your own pain and suffering, understanding that the voice that tells you you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you can't do something are not truth. They are manufactured narratives based on the tendency of us to have negative things stick to us. If you look at the evolution of our species, negative things put you at risk. And they're very sticky. Then when you're relaxed, when you're comfortable, when you're in no fear, that's wonderful. And you don't have to worry. And so things that could put you at risk or at least make you feel that you're at risk, because if you don't respond to them, you could be harmed or you could die. As an example, on the savannah in Africa, if the lion moves the grass and you know that grass is being moved by a lion, Mm -hmm. then, of course, you kick in the flight, fight, freeze response, and then you act. But it's a short circuited type of act because you're just trying to survive. You're not using or you don't have access to those other parts of your brain, like uh, your executive control function areas where you have access to memory, prior experiences, and so that you can make a much more discerning decision about what you're going to do. You just want to survive. And as a result, this profoundly affects your physiology in a negative way. and so recognizing that and then changing how you react is very important. And unfortunately in modern society it actually is always stimulating for many people their sympathetic nervous system. Not necessarily in the sense of they fear for their life, but in a sense that they are uncomfortable, they feel they're being judged, they feel they're not good enough and then that has impact in terms of their creativity, their
0: productivity, their ability to get along. You know, the number of positive effects of self-compassion, just to your point in terms of really activating the parasympathetic the rest and digest and the tend and befriend components of our brain, are so crucial. A lot of people, unfortunately, live under the fallacy that self-compassion is more akin to self-indulgence and just allowing yourself to sit around, eat chips and, you know just contemplate your navel without actually moving through life. but We've seen through various coaches, anything from, you know, the paradigm of Bobby Knight, who throws a chair across the room and what happens to the team, creating an unsafe environment to all the way to Steve Kerr, who considers one of his four basic principles for management. He named them on this very show. Compassion and mindfulness are two of those. And here you are, a world class neurosurgeon who created the cyber knife and who's done all kinds of incredible things, rocking self-compassion as like one of the most important things. And it has its roots all the way back to Ruth and you sitting in the magic shop, which to me is just dumbfounding. Well, it's interesting because that was in the late sixties, of course. And
1: while we did have Haight-Ashbury and the Summer of Love That being said, these thoughts were not well known throughout the United States. This idea of neuroplasticity, the ability to change your brain, the concept of mindfulness, which we're discussing. And for whatever reason, Ruth knew about these. And I think she certainly probably had a background somewhere near Haight-Ashbury. And the thing was that she frankly understood my own suffering. And I think that probably through her own suffering, she was attuned to that. And in some ways, I'm very attuned to individuals who are suffering. And so she taught me these techniques, which, as I said, were very profound. You mentioned the rest and digest or friend and befriend system, the parasympathetic nervous system. When you're able to engage that, it has a profound benefit. Not only does it calm your mind, but it changes your physiology, your cardiac functions improved, your blood pressures lowered, uh, the production of inflammatory proteins is decreased. And of course, these proteins are associated with a lot of disease states, especially chronic ones. Also, you have a boost in your immune system. You have markers of stress as cortisol decreased in your peripheral circulation. So all of these very profound effects. And ultimately, it actually is in some ways anti-aging because it affects the length of your telomeres in a positive
0: way. So very profound, very profound. And a mutual friend of ours, Scott and I were taking a walk last week and a guy can not make this up barrels through the stop sign. And it was the line in the Savannah for me. My I had a massive amygdala hijack. My sympathetic nervous system was just kicking overdrive. And Scott, who's a spectacular practitioner of meditation, mindfulness and compassion, just looked at me and said, that guy must be in a real hurry. <laughs> I was thinking, I would love to be able to rock that Jedi mind trick because. As you and I both know, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other will die. Let's talk a little bit about manifestation, though, because one of the great things that Ruth gave you was the capacity to imagine a future and manifest it, whether it was something material or something achievement oriented or a feeling state. Can you talk about manifesting and how that showed up in your life? What is manifesting? How do you do it? Is there any science behind it? It's interesting you bring that up
1: because I'm actually about to finish another book, which is called Out of the Magic Shop, The Power of Intention. So thank you for that plug. That should be coming out in the fall or early next year. You know, it's interesting because when you have this negative dialogue going on, when you have this statement to yourself that says, I'm not good enough, it's not possible. The reality is by definition, that is reality. And so one of the first things you have to learn is to change that dialogue. Ruth used the analogy of changing the radio station, if you will. So avoiding those types of statements and understanding that you have extraordinary power within yourself to manifest. And this is part of the problem is people believe that things just happen to them and that they don't have any control. And if that's what you believe and you have no plan, you have no goals in the sense that you have mapped them out, if you will, to manifest them, then it seems as though everything is, just happens and nothing could be further from the case. Now, I don't want to imply in their books like The Secret or The Celestine Prophecy that talk about, well, if you do this, you're going to make lots of money. I'm not interested per se in making lots of money. I'm interested in how you can manifest your best self, how you can create meaning and purpose in your life. And that is by being of service to others. And being of service to others can manifest itself in many ways. But when you have this, if you will, this purity of your intention, the likelihood of manifesting things is much higher, I believe. When you try to manifest and it's all about yourself and your needs I think it's a much more difficult, if not impossible task. Don't get me wrong. There are people who do that. You know, you'll have people who said, you know, I wish to have $10 million and I did X, Y, and Z and I got it and God is great and blah, blah, blah. Well, again, while that may happen, I prefer to focus on being of service to others. And the reason is that I focused initially what Ruth taught me on how to deal with my own shame and insecurity. And so I thought if I became a doctor, if I was successful, if I did X, if I did Y, if I was a successful entrepreneur, and, you know, here I am driving Porsches, Ferraris, dating beautiful women, living in a penthouse on the top of a building. And I kept thinking, well, if I just do this, I'll be good enough. and It'll all be great. I'll be happy. And I kept doing all of this and I was never happy. And in fact, I was more unhappy than I had ever been in my entire life. And I couldn't understand this because society especially tells us if you do X, Y, or Z, you are a success. And I connoted that success with meaning happiness. And I thought the external approval was what would make me happy. And I was wrong. And what ultimately happened was that in six weeks, I lost about $80 million and was effectively bankrupt. That was about $3 million in the hole. And of course, in those situations, you get two friends. One friend is your banker. And I had about a $15 million loan out. And the other is your lawyer. And here I went from rags to riches. And then I went to rags again. And the interesting thing is I sat down and reflected on what Ruth had taught me. And I remember I was 12 when I met her. So I really didn't have much self-awareness. I realized that what she had imparted to me was this concept of being of service and well don't get me wrong i was never mean i never cheated anybody i was a doctor very good doctor it's just though it was all about me and what i could do not looking at through the lens of how can i be of service so in this period of reflection after having lost everything i went back to the lesson she originally taught me and really went through it step by step and realized this and While I was dealing with the lawyers, here I am broke, I realized after conversation with them that I had donated an immense amount of stock in a company that had not yet gone public to charity. And my lawyers actually had not filed the paperwork. And they said to me, well, look, you know, in your present situation, you know, you're broke. You probably want to hold on to the stock. And I, of course, asked my friends and basically it was Universal, that if I gave that stock away, I was an idiot and that anybody else in my position would hold on to that to pay off their present debts and to have a lot of money in the bank. And I ultimately chose to honor the initial commitment, gave all that stock away. And when the company went public, it was about $30 million. But what that allowed me to do was, again, to see the world through a different lens I set up health clinics all over the world. I funded an AIDS, HIV program for teenagers and young adults. I set up an equine therapy program. I endowed chairs at universities. I funded research and I founded the center at Stanford, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, of which the Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor. And what I tell people is that here I went from rags to riches to rags, but Ultimately, through that exercise, I got all the riches and it's not the riches of money per se. And don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. I'm not starving, certainly. But it's the riches of a depth of love, a depth of compassion, a depth of self-compassion, the ability to see the world in a different way than I had. And that has been an extraordinary gift and is really one of the greatest riches when you can see that world in that way because this idea of purpose of meaning that is what gives long term happiness i always tell people that the way you want to be remembered by your children is if when they think
0: of love and compassion they think of you And you're tearing up now and i feel like i'm going to as <laughs> well well <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Can you tell me what's going on for you? uh, It's not too personal to ask. Oh, no. Like if these kids could talk, what would they be saying, Jim? On one level, of course, it's sort of
1: the pain I suffered and the benefit of others being compassionate to me. The other side is, of course, uh, recognizing that within me is the ability to give that same gift. So. Imagine here I've been through this experience and uh, while I may be broke at the time, it allowed me to meet the Dalai Lama, become chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. It allowed me to become friends with Desmond Tutu, with Alma the Hugging Saint, with Sri Ravi Shankar, with Sadhguru, with the Pope and a whole variety of individuals who each of us can look up to and see the purity of their own hearts and their actions. And people sit there and they'll say to me, they'll go, well, Jim, you're an atheist. How is it that you're able to be friends with all of these spiritual and religious leaders? Mm. And what I tell people is that, you know, these individuals are not entwined in their dogma. you know, if you're a pure of heart, if you care, if you're compassionate, they can read these feelings in a microsecond. And that's why so many of them have become friends of mine, because I have no other agenda than to love and care and be compassionate.
0: And they can see that, they can sense that. And you find yourself in great company with them, really profound company with them when you're able to access that and they're able to see that in you. I want to hear about your relationship with tears throughout the course of your life. Clearly, your North Star is living authentically, living an integrated life living in a congruous manner is what I keep hearing from you that you don't care what other people think that you want to to be real. And I'm imagining, you know, you as a young boy in Lancaster, California, you know, about to be bullied on your way to Ruth's magic shop. And, you know, this bully basically asked you to kiss his feet and tears were not allowed. And then, you know, the young man, in school, you know, going to pre-med into med school and then rocking it and becoming the rock star in the army and post army and tears would be a different thing there. And then today I'm just kind of wondering, could you take me through your tears in terms of how you've related to them over the course of time? You know, I think that I was
1: always very sensitive and there were periods where I would tear up. I didn't do it very often, but Unfortunately, sort of in the drive to be successful, that is not necessarily felt to be appropriate. But once I got to a certain level, and in some ways related to interacting with the Dalai Lama and really exploring uh, this area, I realized that it was okay. And, you know, these deep feelings that I, I won't say mask, but I didn't necessarily display them were okay. And in fact, when you're that way, People like you to be that way. They want to relate to somebody that way. They don't look at you as weak. In fact, I mean, being able to hold your own and cry or or shed a tear is very powerful. Now, people ask me to go, well, you're a neurosurgeon. Don't you get teary eyed in the operating room? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, uh, you know, regulate this too, you know, but I have no problem holding somebody, family member or someone who I've operated on and shed tears with them. It's okay. I don't get lost in these extremes. As you probably see, I can be crying and I can laugh a second later. You know, it's the ability to be resilient in the face of these emotions and, you know, practice this concept of equanimity. Getting lost in the extremes certainly doesn't benefit anyone trying to have an even keel. But that being said, being in those places without getting
0: lost in those places is okay. I think that's great. And I'm just imagining because you grew up in a time when masculinity was defined very similarly to the way it was defined in my childhood. You know, James Bond, Indiana Jones, these are the guys that you want to be, and they don't necessarily shed a tear and it really limits the scope of our life experience while we're alive. It's almost an insurance policy that we won't live fully while we're alive, which is quite a tragedy if you think about it. And I know I felt closer to you when you shed a tear just now. And I know that you're more full. And I also know that you're able to regulate when you are inside somebody else's brain, quite literally, not figuratively, as you are perhaps extracting a mass from their brain or helping an opera singer maintain her ability to sing after the surgery and making sure that you don't sweat and that you're using many of these mindfulness practices to keep your heartbeat at a nice regulated pace so you can perform optimally. And I think that a lot of people may live again under the fallacy that these mindfulness practices are for the weak or for the new agey and kind of goofy. But meanwhile, The beneficiaries of these practices are people like the Navy SEALs and people like Jim Doty when he's literally performing brain surgery. Again, it
1: gets back to some of these other misconceptions that, you know, when you do this type of mental training, it gives you an entire tool set that allows you to live in this very complex world without chronic distress. And of course, the nature of the modern world is one we were never evolved for. And so, We have this sympathetic nervous system that gets hijacked frequently and being able to self-regulate is really one of the most important gifts you can give. You know, if you look at schools, teaching children how to have emotion regulation is very important. And ultimately, for all of us, I mean, being able to self-regulate your emotions allows you to really see the true nature of reality. Uh, You've probably heard of a quote that is attributed to Viktor Frankl, but it's not for Viktor Frankl, but it says, you know, you have stimulus and then you have response. And between the two is a pause. And within that pause lies your freedom. And I think that's very true.
0: And I always attribute it to Viktor Frankl. It sounds like it's to someone else. So quotes are so frequently misattributed. Let's go to near death experiences. You've Thought about this a lot as a physician and as a human being. And I was wondering if we could go to NDE, as you call them sometimes, near-death experiences. What do we know? From my own experience,
1: I can comment, there are many people who would like to attribute the events that occur as one is dying to a metaphysical cause. And oftentimes, depending on their religious preference, they'll see uh, Jesus or Buddha or someone. As you know, when you mention NDEs, there is a classic situation where someone is dying. They'll be suddenly going down a river of light. They'll hear voices from their past welcoming them. They'll feel this great warmth. And at the end of this river of light is a extraordinarily bright light that you will merge into. And when you do that, you will be dead. And for me, I had that classic experience. And right before I was to enter that area of complete lightness and merge into it, I suddenly said stop. And I woke up and I was in the recovery room. For many people, though, that type of an experience is so profound, so meaningful for them, that one, oftentimes it proves their already fixed belief that there's a God or some God or their God. And then it results in them changing their lives, hopefully for the better. Now, for myself as a scientist, I did not have that experience. There's a lot of literature that shows when you deprive the brain of oxygen, That there's a massive output from your occipital lobes and resulting in this sort of bright light or the other aspect is we know that the strongest memories we have are often associated with people who we love and care about. And of course, as you're dying, those for many people have the deepest meaning, so they occur. So for me, I did not have this metaphysical experience whatsoever. I simply looked at it as an event. I understood it from a physiologic point of view, and I chose not to attribute it to a metaphysical cause. Although many people would like to say, isn't that the thing that changed your life? And frankly, the answer is no. What did? Well, I think that period of reflection after losing everything Mm -hmm. made me truly understand what Ruth had taught me, what it all meant. And what my own purpose is now, it was a long path, right? I mean, she taught me these things at 12. But as I was saying earlier, many of us don't have the self-awareness or the insights at 12 to really understand. And during that period of reflection, it gave me that opportunity. And I just chose at that point to focus on being of service. And this is not to say that my choice is the correct one. It's the one I choose and it's the one I think is most meaningful to me. And I frankly think it's probably would be most meaningful to anyone. But as you said, the teacher comes when the student's ready.
0: At that point, all the lessons i had been taught by the teacher came back to me. Amazing. And, you know, Ruth sadly has long since died, I believe, of breast cancer, as you mentioned in the book. And I imagine she still lives in your heart, in your mind, in your occipital lobe, where you might even see her visually. (laughs) And I'm just wondering... How does she continue to live within you? And if you could have that proverbial, magical conversation over a cup of tea with her today, what would you say? Well, certainly I would thank
1: her. And also, in some ways, at least through me, allowed for her own message and meaning to go forth in the world. As you know, from reading the book, she was supposed to be visiting her grandson and the parents had divorced. The father owned the magic shop. The mother lived elsewhere. And apparently, there was an argument between the two, which prevented the 10 year old son from visiting that summer. And in some ways, I benefited by being the surrogate, and I'm forever blessed for that happening.
0: But, you know, as we said, on a metaphysical level, maybe it was meant for me to be the student at that time. Beautiful. And in terms of where she resides in your consciousness at the moment, uh, because she's not dead in a certain way, she lives on in your thoughts and in your actions. What kind of relationship do you share with her today?
1: The reality is that every action I do, in some ways, is a reflection of honoring her truth. Hopefully, there's always someone in each of our lives who is a beacon that we can turn to when we need guidance. And certainly, I think she's probably one of those people. You know, you mentioned my parents earlier. You know, my parents were very kind and loving, but unfortunately, like so many people who are damaged, uh, they did not have the tools to deal with their own pain. So they sought sola in drugs or alcohol, or it led to mental illness. And, and it's sad, you know, because each of us has so much potential. And if you can't address these deep wounds of your heart, you know, they continue to cause you pain and suffering. And so she allowed me to understand that and, and in some ways to be able to sit with that pain. And while I may become teary eyed or my voice may crack, I understand it's OK. And, you know, I think that's really it.
0: You're talking to the right guy because I did a TEDx talk called Emotions, the data ah. men miss. So it's all about men and emotions is my favorite topic. So a final question, and it's, uh, it's a fantastical one in nature. If you had suddenly conferred upon you the ability to give the gift of an insight or a skill to every living person, What would that insider skill be? And what do you imagine the effect would be on the individual as well as society at large? Well, I think
1: one of the problems for so many people is that they denigrate their own ability to have an impact or they feel overwhelmed by the amount of suffering in the world. So they tell themselves, I can't do this. It would take too much effort. It's impossible. But the reality is every one of us every day, has the ability to improve the life of at least one other person. And many people don't understand that. I I mean, sometimes just giving a person a smile, sometimes giving a homeless person money or a meal, sometimes just holding someone. And, you know, these things don't cost very much. Yet each of us has the capacity to give those. And when you're able to... Give to another uh, really selflessly with no expectation of anything. You know, that is, I think, the greatest definition of compassion. You know, there's a quote that is my quote (laughs) attributable to one Jim Doty. (laughs) I know who the origin of But what I tell people is, let's see how if I can remember my quote, it's basically the most religious people to me are those who are most compassionate. Mm. And I think that's really true you know, getting lost in dogma may be helpful, but following your heart and opening your heart
0: is the most powerful thing in the world. Man, my brother, Jim, it has been a total delight. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing your gift with my listeners. This has been amazing. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Yes. I hope we get to spend some
1: more time together at some point and let's see. So I mentioned my book into the magic shop. You can find out more about my work at Stanford at ccare ccare.stanford.edu you can go to a website called intothemagicshop.com, which talks about things related to the book and if any of you have a question or feel i can help just drop me an email at jrdoti at
0: thanks again jim i hope to be in touch and i would love to continue our conversation in one way shape or form i've only read your book three times <laughs> and listen to your sounds true presentation at least once and see you live. So I'm a legitimate geek for your work. And I agree with you. Well, thank you for being a, such a fan. I appreciate that. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.